0: This is the Fuente Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today I'm gonna to be going through a paper that I had to write for graduate school. It's entitled Credo Ut Intelligim and it's based on a quote from Saint Anselm that's I believe in order that I might understand. And there's this tension between faith and reason. And oftentimes, Anselm is quoted as a way to kind of mock faith because of quotes like that one, I believe, in order to understand. It's this phrase that's used by St. Anselm, and it seems nonsensical, but it may have some validity when you nuance it with what is now called the argument from reason, which was popularized by C.S. Lewis, and it's still alive and applicable today. What would it look like to have all the worldviews in a huge auditorium together? Let's imagine that first, and then we can see how C.S. Lewis nuances this idea that St. Anselm had. Imagine you're in an auditorium. What would we overhear as we walked around through this sea of people? You look around, you see all nations, tribes, and tongues. You look and see supporters of all points of view from throughout time. The Stoics, the Epicureans, the Nihilists. And the humanists, Jews, Muslims, Christians, animists, Catholics, Taoists, Buddhists, Hindus, Communists, Republicans, Democrats, Populares, and Optimates. All together, and they're all talking in this room. And there's a discussion in the part of the auditorium where the thinkers of ancient Greece are sipping wine and having a lively debate. Walking through them, we can overhear them speaking, and we come across this older gentleman. He's Greek, and he's got a beard, and he's got a fat nose. He's surprisingly muscular for his age. This man we're hearing right now is Socrates, and he's having a conversation with his younger contemporary, Euthyphro. Their conversation highlights a 2,500-year-old truth that still holds today. Let's listen and see what they're arguing about. But what sort of difference creates enmity and anger? Suppose, for example, that you and I, my good friend, differ about a number. Do differences of this sort make us enemies, and set us at variance with one another? Do we not go at once to calculation and end them by a sum? Euthyphro responds, True. Or suppose that we differ about magnitudes. Do we not quickly put an end to that difference, too, by measuring... That is true. And we end a controversy about heavy and light by resorting to a weighing machine, to be sure. But what differences are those which, because they cannot be thus decided, make us angry and set us at enmity with one another? I dare say that the answer does not occur to you at the moment, and therefore I will suggest that this happens when the matters of differences are the just and the unjust, good and evil, honorable and dishonorable. Are not these the points about which, when differing and unable to satisfactorily to decide our differences, we quarrel, when we do quarrel, as you and I and all men experience? That's the end of the quote. You see, it's not the issues that are settled by math that put us at odds. It's the arguments that are examining the just and the unjust, good and evil, honorable and dishonorable. Let's consider what sorts of conversations then we would hear in this auditorium with all these different worldviews around us. Surrounding us are men and women, some in robes, some in pants, some with long hair, some with short hair, some with turbans, some with Victorian top hats. We see every shade of skin and the whole planet over. We smell tandoori chicken, Mexican fajitas, cardamom of Arabia, the cilantro of Spain, the bratwurst of Germany, and all the other foods of the world you can think of. As we walk through this great cloud of witnesses, we do not hear them discussing measurements. No, those are settled by some in measuring. We hear them discussing what is just and what is unjust, what is good and what is evil, what is honorable and what is dishonorable. Imagine that great multitude of diverse voices and their views. Is there truth among all of them? And how do we know who is right? How could we trust our own positions in so great a multitude of different voices? We must advance at whatever possible, at whatever pace toward truth, even if it is through a glass darkly. Is there a way to narrow down the choices? What could we use to help weed out the ideas that are untrue and tune our attention to those views which merit our consideration? How can we winnow this great multitude of thoughts from across time and space? In law, we use a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. We use this against an original petition when a plaintiff has an improper claim. In other words, you can dismiss someone's lawsuit without having to even look at the merits of the case in certain conditions. An original petition, that's this document that, that's it's a pleading, it's, it starts a court case. An original petition can be dismissed in this way for several reasons. It can be invalid because even if all the allegations are taken as true, the petition does not warrant uh, any form of relief. Uh, It can be dismissed from the start because it doesn't have proper grounding, etc. The point being, you can sometimes dismiss a view without having to look at the merits it entails because it is incoherent on its face. It doesn't hold any water. It can't even uphold the presuppositions required to move forward. Can we use this sort of logic to, quote, file a motion to dismiss, end quote, against some of the worldviews in the auditorium? Well, in order to even be in this marketplace of ideas, a claim needs to presuppose certain things. It needs to presuppose that truth exists. Surely, if truth doesn't exist, why waste the time debating people while in the pursuit of truth? How can they be wrong if there's no correct truth out there that's the subjective standard with which to compare them to? Additionally, it must be assumed that truth is objectively better than falsehood. If truth exists, but it has no value above falsehood, why follow the truth when it's inconvenient? Or as Nietzsche put it, Quote, Granted that we want the truth, why not rather untruth and uncertainty, even ignorance? End quote. That's from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. Um, that's from page one. Of the 1917 edition. Um, Okay, and if other people would be happier believing what they already believe, which that's normally the case, people like to believe what they're already believing, why are you upsetting them by arguing with them and trying to change views that are central to them? If truth doesn't really matter. Subjective happiness can't be more important than truth if we're going to even set sail on this journey. Additionally, a worldview also needs to presuppose that rational inquiry can lead us to truth. Otherwise, why are you debating? If debate is from the start, de facto useless, a worldview also has to assume that you exist and that you are a free will agent, at least to such an extent that whatever you're saying is not the result of merely deterministic and stochastic processes. Otherwise, who are you? Who are you talking to? Neither of these people actually exist. And they can't really control what they believe. It's fair well to say, quote, we must only believe things on evidence, end quote, but in order for this axiom to even be intelligible, the statement certain things must be true that can't be proven with evidence. They're the sorts of things you assume in order to even address the evidence. To wit, memories. You can't prove them. Perception. Things like that. Knowledge is like a liquid, but a liquid needs something to contain it. What good is water if you have no jar to contain it in? A worldview needs to provide this jar to hold the data, the evidence, the value of truth, the rationality of the mind, etc., or it spills onto the ground with no infrastructure or system to make use of it. With all that laid out, let's look at what a jar that can hold evidence would look like. And with this, we're going to continue on in our auditorium and run into a man dressed in the garb of medieval England. We're in the auditorium. We approach a man. He's got a monk robe on and he has prominent bangs that they're almost distracting in their austerity as we see him. And we ask him, what is it about his views of the world that make him think he has the truth, even though there's so many other voices in this auditorium? And they're all wrong and he's correct. Where does this confidence come from? We also ask how he knows his God is the true God. He doesn't speak to us, but instead bows his head in a prayer. And this is a quote now from, uh, what's a, it's a primary source quote. This is St. Anselm. I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believed, I should not understand. Um, I, that's a secondary source. Quoting a primary source, secondary source that I quoted from is Edgar William a- a- K. Scott Oliphant, Christian Apologetics, Past and Present, Volume 1 to 1500. Uh, a primary source reader, Wheaton Crossway Books, 2009, page 372. What? What is he saying? Is it nonsense? A post Enlightenment Westerner could easily find themselves agreeing with Avery Cardinal Dulles, who said, "Although Saint Anselm does seek reasons, his faith in no way depends on the success of this effort. Anselm is therefore far removed from the rationalism, it is his, from rationalism as it is developed." Uh, since the Enlightenment. That's a quote from Dole's Avery Cardinal, A History of Apologetics, and that's from page 75. Really, Anselm? One could be forgiven for asking. You see, by believing, aren't you just blatantly begging the question? And the answer is, perhaps he is. As we are taking a moment to try and decide whether we've just heard brilliance or nonsense, we see another figure approaching. This one is an ancient Near Eastern Semitic Israelite king. He's ruddy and handsome. We hear him playing a stringed instrument, a kinnor, as he sings along to the strumming Quote, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. That's from Psalm 36, verse 9. In your light we see light. What does that mean? I believe, in order that I may see? Are both of these men just talking nonsense? Are these two ideas connected? Do St. Anselm's words have the breath of the life of biblical truth in them, and your light, I see light? Can credo ut intelligum be salvaged, or must the idea be thrown out in total? An argument called the argument from reason might be able to hold those ideas together while at the same time holding all ideas together. We make our way to a table, where sits the Oxford Don and self-described dinosaur, C.S. Lewis. We take a seat, and discussion begins. His British accent is so strong and extenuated that he almost sounds like a child's exaggerated imitation of a British accent. You breathe in, and the smell of tobacco, a tobacco pipe, fills your nostrils. You hear a teacup rattling as it's set down on the table. What's at stake? The very minds we're using to discuss all the questions of the auditorium. Do we need to believe in order to see? Are our minds, as Francis Crick stated, nothing but a pack of neurons? And that is from Francis Crick's The Astonishing Hypothesis, The Scientific Search for the Soul. Charles Schubner's Sons, 1994. Um, Are we this pack of neurons or are we something more? We are going to find out next time. See you guys then.